Joel chapter 2, 1 to 17, the impending judgment and a call to repentance. The impending judgment is in verses 1 to 11, and then the call to repentance, 12 to 17. Verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march every one in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Amen. Our Father, we ask you to give us an insight into this word and help us to understand your impending judgment, whether it is by locust plague or however it may be, that one day we will soon be Separated from the people of this world, our bodies will go to the grave and then our souls will be ready for judgment, either life or death. We ask you, Father, that we'll be prepared and that our loved ones will be prepared. 
We pray, Lord, that repentance would be understood and that you would grant repentance to us and to all those around us. We ask you, Lord, to teach us anew and to give us a greater urgency to preach the soon judgment of God, the day of the Lord, and to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. One key to understanding the book of Joel, especially in chapters 1 and 2, is the fact that he is describing a locust plague. And from chapter 1, 1 verse 6, we saw that he describes these locusts as people, or as a nation, or as an army. Because God uses the locusts like an army, like a foreign army, to destroy and devastate the people and the land because of their sin. That is a key to the interpretation. Even in chapter 2, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, this is what Joel is describing. Let's set that as the backdrop first, and let's prove it and set it as the backdrop, and then we'll be able to interpret all of these images correctly. Chapter 1, verse 6, Joel says, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. This is right after verse 4, when he describes a locust plague. And also in verse 7, where he also describes the devastation of the trees, the trees and all all of the green plants in verse 7. In the middle of it, he calls the locusts a nation. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the middle of the verse, he says, So there is a great and mighty people. A great and mighty people. But are they literally people or are they locusts? Verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? In verse 11, they are called his army. But I think it becomes absolutely clear what he means in 2.25. In 2.25, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. He calls all of these kinds of locusts as a group, my great army. My great army. They're called an army in verse 11 and his camp also in chapter 2, verse 11. And they are called people in chapter 2, verse 2. And they are called a nation in chapter 1, verse 6. This is what Joel is talking about. A literal plague of locusts that is something that they've never seen before that utterly destroys everything in the land and creates lots of famine and misery for all the people because of their sin. That's the description here. So when imminent judgment comes, soon coming, what should people do? Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. 
Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A trumpet has to be blown. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, 15. Also, he says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Why blow the trumpet? Blow a trumpet to the inhabitants of the land so that they repent. Because in Numbers 10, 1 to 10, and Ezekiel 33, 1 to 9, the watchmen, those who blow the trumpet, are supposed to warn the inhabitants of their cities or of their land of impending judgment or impending affliction, impending foreign army coming to invade. And what should the people do when that happens? They need to repent and call on God. Repent and call on God. Ezekiel 33, for example. 33, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and he blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. This is the reason for the trumpet. Blow the trumpet to warn the people that judgment's coming and they better repent. They need to tremble. Tremble before the thought of the awesome and terrible judgment of God. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The problem with people is that they are worse than demons. People are worse than demons, if we can fathom that. Why do we say that? Because demons tremble at the knowledge of God. They tremble at true knowledge of God. James 2.19, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons believe that there is one true and living God, and it causes them to tremble, to shudder, to quake. But when people hear that there's one true God, or they hear of the one true gospel, it doesn't move them, it doesn't cause them to tremble. In that way, people are worse than demons. That's why they need to be aroused. They need to hear an ominous sound, the ominous sound of a trumpet, 
warning them that judgment is about to come. They need to be shaken up awake from their stupor and their sleep. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. The day of the Lord. This day of the Lord for unrepentant sinners is a day of punishment. They enter that if they have a physical affliction now, but they will ultimately enter that in the life to come. It is near. That's why John the Baptist and Christ, their first public words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand, near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17. Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17. Isaiah the prophet preaches like this too. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord, call upon him. When? While he may be found, while he is near, Isaiah says. Isaiah 55, 6. Now, he's using earthly elements to describe what the locusts will do. Verses 2 to 11. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. When there is a swarm of locusts, and it's not just a little bit here or there, a swarm, but a massive swarm that sweeps across the country, which has happened Throughout the years, even in our generation, it happens. Even recently, it, ha- it has happened. Not here, but in Asia, West Asia. It has happened, and it continues to happen. Well, Joel is saying that when they come across the landscape, they produce darkness, gloom, and it's like a day of clouds, a day of thick clouds, of thick darkness. Because when they come and they are flying in the sky, they're going to block the sun, which is what he mentions later when he's going to describe how they block the sunlight and the moonlight, so forth. Verse 3, A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. This is a description of how they take away so much of the vegetation of the land that it is desolate. It's like a desert. It's barren. It's like a fire out of control just swept across the whole nation and took away all the green trees, all of the vegetation, all of the green grass. The locusts did that, like a fire. He describes it like the Garden of Eden, verse 3. The Garden of Eden. The land was lush, It was green, it was fertile, it produced fruitful crops, 
That was before the locusts came, when God blessed the people in spite of their sins, but the blessing of God would not move them to repent. So now the curse of God is sent to move them to repent. Like the Garden of Eden, a uh, a paradise before them, but after that, after the locusts come, it's going to be a desolate wilderness where there's no water and everything is dry and shriveled. Verse 4, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of, as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for a battle. They leap here and there, and they go quickly, swiftly, here and there, wherever they want, like horses do, who are war horses prepared for battle. They make a racket, they make a noise, just like chariots. They leap and they go wherever they want. And he repeats the fire imagery, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the the stubble. They just consume everything. And in this case, in verse 5, they not only consume the green vegetation, they even consume stubble. They take whatever's left. Even that which is worthless to us, the locusts are able to destroy. Twenty or Verse 6, 2 verse 6. Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. When the people see this plague of locusts, they know what locusts do and they know that it's hopeless. They are demoralized, dispirited. They know that soon after the locusts arrive and after they leave, it will take them a long time to recover, to be able to have a fruitful harvest, to have land that's tillable and usable, They know it's going to take years. And they don't want to deal with drought, famine, starvation. They don't want to have to move from their homeland to neighboring lands. That's why they are demoralized. They're in anguish and their faces turn pale. Seven. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. In 7 and 8, he's describing a perfect, a perfect military procession, a perfect military invasion. Every single soldier in God's army, which means every single locust, goes in pattern, goes in ranks, goes in file, does not deviate. You can't bribe them. You can't say, hey, why don't you defect and come to the other side? I'll give you some money. Whatever. They don't do that. The locusts cannot be bribed away from their duty. They're not lazy. They're not sleepy. They're not worried about other matters in life. 
They are ready to please the one who enlisted them as soldier. The locusts are. They don't deviate from God's will for them. Interesting, isn't isn't it? The insects, a multitude of insects, will do exactly what God wants. But why don't people do exactly what God wants? Why won't they repent? It's easier to keep the locusts in line than people in line. Verse 9. They are invincible and they penetrate in the innermost places of the land. Verse 9. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. You can't withstand them. You can't fend them, uh, fend them off. You can't do anything like that. They are going to be so overwhelming. Exodus chapter 10. This has happened before. It happened in the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 10. He starts at verse 4. Exodus 10, 4. Moses against Pharaoh. Exodus 10, verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one shall be able to see the land. They shall also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then the fulfillment of it. Verse 14, 10, 14, 14 and 15. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. They had never seen so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. When they invade, they go wherever they want, just like a foreign, a strong foreign army. Verses 10 and 11. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army, surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? All of creation, all of creation trembles. The earth, the heavens, the sun and the moon, the stars lose their brightness. He may be in verse 10 describing how the earth and the heavens cannot withstand this onslaught of the locusts. And then in the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, because when they are over the land, 
and flying through the air. If it's daytime, the sun is dark. If it's nighttime, the moon is dark. They travel in daytime and nighttime. And the stars, of course, at night. You can't see them. Just like when there's dark clouds at night. You can't see. You can't see the moon and you can't see the stars. That's how many locusts God will bring. He calls them His army, His camp, is very great. And all why? Because God said so. God said the word, and the Lord utters His voice before His army. God's word, whenever God speaks, just like in Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33, Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. Psalm 33, 6 to 9. Actually, let's read 6 to 12. Psalm 33, 6 to 12. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. God rules over the nations. And he also rules over all creation. By his simple spoken word. Verses 6 and 7. By his word, he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. By his word, he's able to gather the waters of the sea as a heap. He's able to do whatever he wants. Therefore, all the earth, all the inhabitants of the world should fear him, should stand in awe of him. They should stand in awe of him, in awe of his word, but also in awe of his day of judgment. Joel 2.11, both stand in awe because of his great and powerful word, but also his great and very awesome day of judgment. Who thinks about God's word and trembles. Isaiah taught us to do so. Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Whose 
humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. When we think of God as creator, and even when we worship God or think of the house of God, the place of worship, we ought to think of him as, his, as our creator, but also think about his word and tremble. Tremble at his word. Also tremble at the thought of the day of judgment. Tremble at the thought of the day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He calls it a terrifying thing. He says in verse 27, it's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment when we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In Hebrews 12, 29, he says, our God is a consuming fire. 1229, our God is a consuming fire. And we ought to approach him, he says in 1228, with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. Just like Joel is saying. When we think about his word, think about his judgment, think about the day of judgment, we ought to have awe. Lastly, in 2.11, he says, Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Didn't it say in Hebrews 10.26-31 that it is a severer punishment than the worst punishment of the law of Moses? The worst punishment that Moses instituted for disobedience to God's word in terms of what the magistrate could do, was the death penalty. If one deviated from the word of God, from the law of God, in idolatry, let's say, or immorality, then the worst penalty was the death penalty by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But he says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Right? What is the severer punishment that nobody can endure? Who can endure it? The severe punishment is the holy and righteous God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Acts chapter 10, 17. Acts 17, 30, 30 to 31. Acts 17, 30 to 31. Jesus Christ is the man God appointed to judge the world. If he's the judge of the world, the Jesus we should keep in view is a Jesus of judgment. A Jesus of judgment who will judge the world and punish the world that refuses to repent. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who will make the day of the Lord something that no one can endure unless they're found in him. Unless by repentance and faith they believe in him. No one can endure it. This we must preach because people think that God will be gracious, merciful, loving, long-suffering, and patient with them on the day of judgment. That's what they think of God. They don't understand who God is. They worship idols. And they think God will take care of them and be merciful to them on the day of judgment when they don't really, truly believe in Jesus Christ and show that by repentance, turning from sin. Nobody's going to endure it unless they're in Christ. So, what does Joel say we must do? Two seven, uh, no, 2.12-17 Repent. Joel 2, 12 to 17 is essentially a call to repentance. It's just like Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's see how he describes the need to repent. 2, 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. While you are able to hear God's word, while you hear the preacher, the minister, the pastor preach repentance, what should you do? Right now, at the moment you hear it, repent. Don't wait another minute. Don't wait another day or 10 years. Don't wait. Repent now. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. And how should we do it? With fasting, weeping, mourning. We should tear our hearts, rend our hearts, and not our garments. He's referring to the practice of of ripping your clothes, putting also in other places, putting ash or dust on your head, tearing your clothes as you mourn, as you weep, as you fast, when you are grieving. Either grieving because you see devastation 
that, that has happened. You see death that has happened or grieving because of your own sin. He's saying, don't be preoccupied about the externals. Don't be preoccupied with putting on a show, showing up, tearing your garments, applying some ash or dust to your head. Don't be preoccupied and put false hope on external rituals as though God doesn't care about your heart. He does care about your heart, so repent from the heart. That's what he means in 12 and 13. Return to me with all your heart. That's the first and greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And rend your heart. He wants sincerity in the heart. Truth in the inner man. 13 further says, He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. He reminds us of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is a classic passage that we all should know. We should know, we should memorize. Uh, memorize. Exodus 34. Let's actually read 5 to 8. Exodus 34, 5 to 8. God appears to Moses. 34, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. This passage is quoted in the prophets very frequently and in the Psalms frequently. In the prophets and in the Psalms by David the prophet. This is a passage that clearly gives us in a nutshell who God is, the character of God. He's a righteous God who will certainly punish unrepentant sinners, but he's also gracious when sinners repent. Joel preaches this. The last part of 13, relenting of evil, relenting of evil means he's going to on the basis of seeing repentance, not inflict the evil of punishment that he threatened. He threatens punishment, which is an evil experience. It's a curse. God threatens it. But when he sees repentant sinners, he relents. He changes course. He changes his mind. This does not mean God is taken by surprise that he changes his mind. What it means is, from our perspective, 
God changes his course of action because he called on us to repent. When we repent, then he forgives us. It's speaking from a human perspective. 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Who knows? That is also a very threatening statement or question. Who knows? Who knows? God may still punish. But we should still repent. But if he does turn and relent, if God does turn and relent, he might leave a blessing, both physical and spiritual. If we don't repent, what's the certainty? Punishment. If we do repent, there might be two things God does. He might forgive us and leave a blessing, or he may still punish us. So what's the better choice? What's the better option? Repent. Repent. And if we do so sincerely, we do so genuinely repent from the heart, then we certainly will receive Salvation, eternal life in Christ. That certainly will happen. Now he repeats the call to mourn and fast. 15 to 17, to take heed. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the, minister, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? A renewed call in 15 to blow the trumpet and assemble everyone in fasting weeping, and mourning. And who should assemble? 16 and 17 describe everybody. Everybody. Young and old, those in authority, those without authority, children, nursing infants. If the nursing infants assemble, that assumes the mothers are there with them, right? So, Male, female, young, old, adult, child, infant. Those with power and authority and those without the power and authority in society. Everybody, come and repent. Also in 16, those who are enjoying or about to enjoy great joy in marriage. Suspend your wedding. Suspend your marriage. Because when people marry, there's always joy. There should be always joy, happiness, right? No gloom and doom, but happiness when people marry. But here he's saying, you better hold off on that and you better repent. So turn joy into gloom in true repentance. Also in 17, 
he focuses on the priests, the priests who are supposed to pray for the people. They do pray here. The priests who are supposed to lead by example. The priests who are supposed to be intercessors, interceding for the people. They are the ones who are supposed to call upon the name of the Lord. And they should not be the ones letting the nations, the pagan idolatrous nations, mock God and the people of God. The priests should be first and foremost concerned about the glory of God, the name of the Lord. They should pray intercessory prayers. They should lead by godliness, lead the people by example and show them the way they should live. James 3.1 Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1 Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do so, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16 1 Timothy 4.16 Paul told Pastor Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Why? Because you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. They have a charge, they have a responsibility to preach faithfully, practice faithfully, and lead the people that way because it depends on your salvation and their salvation. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 17 to 19. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Hebrews thirteen seventeen to 19. The people are supposed to obey, submit. Why? Because the leaders... Keep watch over your souls. And the leaders will give an account to God on the day of judgment. And let them conduct their duties, their charge over you with joy, not grief. And if they do it with grief, it's unprofitable to the church. They say in verse 18, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. These leaders live with a good conscience. They desire to conduct themselves honorably in all things so that they and their hearers live a godly life. And when God meets them on the day of judgment, there will be joy. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25 21. The same here. Joel the prophet 
calls on the priests to lead by example, both by life and by their prayers. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.